try and make some pictures that suggest how it feels to be there. You know, a camera will record pretty faithfully often what it might look like, but the intervention that I really engage with, the challenge that I really love is to, in some way, subtly suggest with the pictures how it felt for me to be there. Welcome to Talk Design Show, where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey, your host, and having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is photographer Simon Devitt. Simon's uh, based in New Zealand and has a huge body of work, is highly, highly recognised. He's also a teacher. He's also a publisher. And he has a lot of other interesting things going on. But Simon um, and I chatted actually, I reckon it would have been about three or four months ago, and our recording didn't record clearly. So we're going again. Simon, welcome to Talk Design, buddy. Hey, mate, thanks for having me on again. Um, hopefully we get this audio happening this time, huh? <laughs> that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> anyway, it's always a pleasure to get to chat, that's for sure. Um, Simon, let's do a quick run through your past of you know, how you came to be a photographer, how you came to do architectural photography, um, and why it's something that, uh, I suppose, you share so passionately. Um with others and teaching others with it as well. So tell us how it all kicked off. Where did you come from? Uh, I blame my dad. It's, it's always good to blame your parents, right? So um, <laughs> I can very happily blame my dad for this one because he was really great at carrying an SLR, always loaded with slide film wherever we went as a family. And we traveled a lot. We lived in the United States. Uh, so I went to school there. We travel around in, a, in a, an old Thunderbird that had a round window in the back seat. So I got to see wherever we went through this little round window. So it framed the world in an interesting way for me. It could have been that or you could have been in a boat and it was a porthole. But yeah, those old Thunderbirds are a beautiful car, aren't they? Yeah, they're pretty great. I remember it <laughs> yeah. really clearly like it was yesterday. It was bright red yep. and had white leather interior. Um, and so that's how we moved around the States and Canada. And, um, yeah, I got to see, see the world that way. And then dad would always process a slide film and project it onto the wall. So there were slideshows all the time. And, you know, for most kids, I think that would be really boring. For me, I was completely enthralled, um, not only just seeing us as a family and where we went, but this beautiful projected quality image quality onto the wall and how you know we could sit down as a family and see that together versus you know on reflection looking back most of the way we view images now is, is very uh, a solitary experience we're looking at a book or we're looking on our phones um, the projected social experience is still happens but it's, it doesn't happen how it used to I really take your point there like it used to be a uh, an event and even photography in that point was so much 
you know, everything was developed on film. So it was carefully considered way more than today, way more than uh, we are currently, where everybody's a photographer right now because they carry a, a, a camera in their pocket that they also can make a phone call on. You know, that's, uh, yeah, that's I the lo- shift. I love, I love that too, Adrian, because photography has always been a democratic sport, you know, from the very early days of the box brownie, which was kind of like the Model T Ford of its time yes. in the camera world. Everyone got to be a photographer. You you used up your box brownie, you took it or posted it back in to where you got it from, and they'd send back um, the prints. And so um, the iPhone essentially isn't that much different, except as you point out really beautifully, we could be doing anything on these, on these devices now. Uh, and therein lies the problem the art of constraint and restraint has been lost. So we don't measure as much, we, we just do. And therein lies the conundrum, it looks like freedom, but it's not. And the metaphor I really use uh, a lot in, in my talks is that freedom doesn't look like an ocean. Freedom looks like a stream. The idea of, of freedom is that we can cross to the other side and we know that there is another side. and and that there is a constraint and we get to express our ability to be restrained by, by those constraints. So with an ocean, uh, it looks like freedom, but it really is not. It's a really, really beautiful way of describing that. You know, like, as you say, a stream, you can see it and you can cross to the other side and you can, you can quantify it, whereas, which gives you the freedom of choice, I suppose, Whereas an ocean that's endless and so broad, you're almost lost in it. Not necessarily, yeah. but you're almost lost in it. Yeah. I think that's a fabulous way to, to look at, at life. And also, if you look at that in the sense of photography, I suppose the constraints that you used to have probably gave you uh, an, a different sense of uh, I don't even know, but a different sense of freedom. I don't know. Maybe, you know, we have freedom to snap off pictures at a million miles an hour until our um, amount of data we've either purchased or we carry on our phones run out. When I think I- there's a, um, the sense I get, Adrian, is that, um, and, you know, I'm very much a student of all this and, you know, as we all are and we'll be yeah. until our last breath, is that the sense I get is that there's um, a different relationship to time that we have when, we have um, uh, the ability to refine things as we go. So there's there's not just the endless mire of doing things, doing anything, and they all kind of um, uh, endless and back to back, ongoing and always. That with constraints mm. and self discipline, if you like, if you want to call it that, we are, um, we have the ability to add some space in between all of the things that we do so that we can see them as individual separate things, achievements within a process, if you like. I mean, that sounds very dry, but I think you get my... Uh, I know I know what you're saying. Yeah. Sense of what I'm saying is that, you know, it, it, it slows time down. And I think when we are able to do anything at any time, uh, it, it definitely makes time go way too quickly. So, um, 
yeah, I, I think it's important that we're able to try and in our own way, whatever that means for us individually. It, you know, in the same way we know what music is because of the silences in between the notes. Yeah. It's yeah. our relationship to those moments in between that is as important as the thing itself. A hundred percent. I'm trying to think of who the spiritual guy uh, that talks about, you know, God is in between He's the space in between. I know Wayne Dyer talks about it, but I'm trying to think of the other guy that talks about it. And um, yeah, God is in between the, the it's the silence in between. Yep. And without silence, we, uh, I suppose, just end up with busyness. And then without with busyness, we just end up with the lack of freedom. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. exactly right. Yeah. So when you're approaching um, photography, especially in an architectural sense of photography, how does that relate? How does that slowing down of time relate? And do you slow it beyond the natural order of, you know, like day and night? Or Tell me about that. I think for me, architecture is the broadest possible subject for me. It's like, it's like a very big door, big window into the world where I get to see how we all live, where we work, where we play. Um, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's a very big, broad look at the world. And it's um, a lot like how I taught myself and how I continue to teach myself um, about life, about, about um, my place in it, about the, the things that I love about the world that I'm inspired by with the camera. And what I've learned over the years is that anything I'm confronted by when I pick up the camera is what I'm also confronted by when in life. And so um, it's a great way for me to be present and in the moment. There's no greater machine that I know of where you pick up the camera and it causes you to be in the moment constantly, like every moment. Isn't that so true? I love that. And I love mm. that. And, and so on a shoot, you know, a typical day for me will um, mean that I arrive early and I leave late. And I'm in that one place for that that whole day. And in a sense, that's a very short window of time. But in another sense, it's, it's a lovely window of time where I get to um, engage, sit still, be, be very present with um, all of the moments that I encounter while I'm there, you know, from from dark, early dark to late dark, yeah. everything in between. And I love that because it, it, it's, um, it's, it's in a way, it's like a meditation. I get to um, watch and wait, witness and yeah. react to, to moments. And, you know, some people might look at architecture and go, well, you know, nothing's moving there. There's, there's, just <laughs> there's nothing car. happening. Yeah. Building, there's nothing <laughs> happening. But, uh, you know there are there are moments second by second and when you look at a, a landscape like New Zealand or Australia yeah. you know our our um our skyscape or our clouds is as much mm-hmm. um as as interesting as as the landscape and, mm-hmm. and then uh we're very outdoor oriented people so we're always doing something in the in the environment so often when I turn up there's there's a family living their life in this in this home that they've um created. Yeah. And 
you know, I get to witness that. And so what's not lost on me at all at any stage, Adrian, is that when I turn up, that's someone's dream that came true. And I love that. And, and so I'm very humbled by that. And I uh, attempt to be invisible, really, and, and just witness this, um, this day unfolding, this um, place that's been made or being made, and, and try and make some pictures that suggest how it feels to be there. You know, a camera will record pretty faithfully often what it might look like, but the intervention that I really engage with, the challenge that I really love is to, in some way, subtly suggest with the pictures how it felt for me to be there. I love that. I think that's, um, I think that's probably the part where it goes from technician to artist to beyond the artist. It's like deep art where it is you're conveying a feeling and your ability to um, take the embodied energy of that place and translate it and then translate that into a picture that somebody else I don't know whether they really get that. Maybe if they sit quietly with it, they would um, and get the feeling of what it is. Like it's more than a beautiful image. And that play of light, um, if you think of photography as capturing light, then the play of light against landscapes, buildings, skies, um, water, that's where being able to take time or not being able to, requiring yourself to take time at the speed of, of the earth, at the speed that it natural, the natural rhythm of it um, is a pretty special thing. It certainly shows up in your work. There's no doubt about that. Mm, thanks. Thank you. It does. It, like you look through your work and it's, um, there's always something at play but it's never yelling at you. It's always you've got to you've got to, I suppose, take the breath to to look into it. I um I usually you know do ninety percent of looking at Instagram and stuff on my um phone, which I love when I go. You know what? I've got an hour and I'm gonna go look. I I, I kind of stalk um certain you know people like I'll stalk your photography just looking at the pictures and looking for the nuances in them I do it with some other photographers as well but I'm just looking for the nuances looking for the story that it tells me that isn't just face value oh there yeah, the lights are on you know or the yeah that's I'm looking for those light angles and whether it shows the depth of something or whether it, and also the point you made about the skies like the skies, often I think in architecture, because the sky is forever changing, but when you get some predominant types of skies, to look at how the architecture can reflect those or bring those into part of the picture um, that you're creating on the landscape as a, as a designer, you know, and then as a, as a photographer, somebody who actually captures those nuances and captures the way it actually relates and as the light changes from morning to night but also cloud form um 
you know, New Zealand, the Aotearoa, long blend of the long white cloud. So there is always a lot of cloud form and it makes it a really beautiful scape, you know, whether it be soft and grey or whether the light hues are all deep blues or whether it's, you know, puffy and small white clouds or stormy, stormy skies. I always love Sydney for that, stormy skies. Um, yeah. you, you know, they come in over the heads and stuff and you just go, oh, wow, look at that coming. <laughs> um, but again, what a beautiful time to capture something. I love the point that you made about the machine being, you know, the camera um, creates presence because you are, you, you're present in that in that moment and it just keeps creating moments every time you're using it that make it more and more present so it causes you to be present and um we're so often um distracted sitting in the past or distracted from from being present by you know something that's either happened or or about to happen um instead of being engaged with all of our senses in the moment that we find ourselves in. And, and a camera is just a really beautiful way to, um, to, to be present. And um, uh, I love that. Just, when, did, yeah. when did you discover that? When did you actually, well, you probably discovered it long before you recognised it. When did you recognise it? That, that yeah, was... as, as children, we're, we're, we're so beautifully aware of things that as adults we kind of lose lose touch with mm. and while as adults we might be able to reflect and look back and and name those things or describe them you know on reflection at the time we just um you know when we're children we're we're so in it mm. we we won't we don't have a point of comparison to make so we, we're just we're just doing it and we're feeling it and it's happening as adults we get to compare it to a million other things and place values and judgments on it and therein lies the problem where we um we get distracted so um yeah i think it, it was always something i recognized but the difference between um you know experiencing it then for the first time and just doing it and, and being able yeah. to look back now and, and know what it is is uh, they're two very different things for sure I have this thing where I remember when I was probably maybe about early, maybe not even early 30s, maybe late 20s, when I um, I realised that the place that I like to live the most is on a hill or on, a, on, on something. I don't like to live on the flat. And... Um, it dawned on me one day and I was like, what, what is like, even the thought pattern, what was that about? Like, why is that? And, you know, since then I have lived on the flat a few times, but I always seek out to live on a hill and um, you know, I always buy houses on hills and, you know, those kind of things. Um, but it gives me some sense of, I don't know, um, surety or calmness or whatever I don't know I don't know what it is but it's a, there is something in the rhythm of me that that matters to and so and being able to recognize it and it's like you're just saying about um, being present 
you know, I look for the moments where I am most present and often like I like to go to a piece of land when we, we can design something for a piece of land. And I really want everybody else to just bugger off. I, I don't want other people around me. Usually I have to have them there for a part of it. But then I want to find some space to just sit and observe it and listen to it, smell it, um, let it let it become, you know, fall in love with it, let all the senses become alive um, without distraction. Must say that I get distracted by, you know, the sounds of bees and the sounds of birds and, you know, the grass, the wind and the grass and all those things so easily anyway. But at least I'm just in that space absorbing that space. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't love to, to, I don't like to sit there and necessarily, you know, take a, a bunch of photos of it or anything like that. I like to just watch it, just spend, you know, hours just watching it. And then from that, I have this sudden embodied sense of what it's about. And, um, and then you start to think about what you could put there that would suit the needs of the people asking for it and also respect it respect that piece of land you know and sometimes sometimes that's not always going to be possible depending on what people are looking for but do your best to to play within the space play within the space as the space was made to be um, because you know architecture is always going to be a a blot on the on the landscape whether it's a beautiful blot or whether it's a bloody terrible blot it is it's an alteration of the landscape I often look when we're, you know, you look at these new housing estates where they just bulldoze everything and completely alter the shape of the land, completely alter any embodied energy in it, lay pipes and tarmac and retaining walls and just basically <laughs> make a, a shit show of it and then smash as many houses in there as possible. I always feel... Um, when I look at those places, we don't do much with those places, but when I look at them, I go, oh, well, all the, all the um, embodied energy of that land's been shifted and destroyed or not necessarily destroyed, shifted and changed, and it's going to take time for it to heal itself back to what it should be or back to what it could be. Um, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, our, our intentions um, as humans and our endeavour, uh, it always gets revealed and um, it's like a sort of a time stamp as much as anything too. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an, there's an alchemy within the architecture and there's an alchemy within um, the part that I play as a photographer and um, time decides a lot about how a building is used and viewed in the same way that a photograph yeah. is as well. Um, the difference is that the the pictures travel, but the building can't. And I love that aspect, yeah. that relationship between the architect and the photographer, and how how vital that is. Um, how how um, how dynamic that can be. I mean, in yeah. some hands, it, it's, uh, the potential's not perhaps revealed. Let's <laughs> just say, but um, and others, I think it's really it is a really powerful, potent mix, and I love I love that possi possibility and that potential and that that intention that shows up. Um, 
in those relationships and in the, I, in the results. I think I enjoy that as well. Like um, it's passing of sort of one piece of art uh, to another artist and then that artist gets to reveal it. And the only way that that artist uh, or the, the original artist um, has their work travel is via the, by the next artist, you know, like mm-hmm. architecture doesn't get up and move around. It, um, uh, unless it's a tiny house, I suppose, on a bus or something, um, but it doesn't get up and move around. Architecture is static, but photographers are the magic that unlocks that static structure and captures it and gives it to the world or gives it to everybody who's interested. And I think it's a, a, a beautiful synergy of two artists having to work together to get to the absolute outcome of it. I love also looking at um, different photos of the same space from different um, photographers. Like that's always really, really fascinating. You take, you know, maybe three or four amazing photographers and they all capture the same space with a difference. And partly because they all see it differently and they all have a different, um, I suppose, idea of what they're trying to capture or the or the story or how it feels to them when you've got you 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 teach people so you um with that when you send students out to uh, look at something and when they come back if they've all taken photographs of it um What's that, tell me about that kind of story. What what's what's that like, and what do you see in each different one, or not individually, but what are the things you're looking for, and how do you judge whether they've got it or not got it? I shouldn't say judge, assess. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and and you know you pointed out really beautifully already that every photographer. Um, is as unique as their thumbprint. So everyone will bring something different to looking at the same thing, possibly, if you if you set that scenario up, um, which is w- wonderful. Um, sometimes things, different things get revealed. Someone mm-hmm. might just take a, a wide view of something or in, in the other, in, in different hands, someone may move in very closely and pick up some detail or, or do both. So um, the way the way I'm teaching my students is to um, think about and engage with other other um, other not not just your other senses, to, but to be aware of other things that surround your your moments of being present. So um, there's there's different exercises that I will um, give them to get a sense of what creating their own constraints can give them. So what I do know is that the moment someone picks up a camera, the world becomes very, very big, very large. Um, the world of photography, as one of my students put it, is bigger than the world. And so how do we sort of re- reduce that feeling of being overwhelmed? A- and the way I do it is by 
introducing different constraints, like the, there are exercises that I give each student and then they get to experience what that might be like and, and, and then create their own so that when they pick up the camera, um, they're aware of certain things that will enhance the experience of going up to photograph what it is they're going oh. to photograph. Sure. Um, and so it's a, it becomes a personal experience, not just an experience with the world and a camera. They're somehow ingrained or become um, a part of that process. Part of them is imprinted literally in each of those photographs. And so there are ways to do that. So you put them through a set of, you know, like constraints, as you say, which gives them a, a set of experience. And somewhere in there, they find themselves. And in finding themselves, they find that they they find the situation they're in, and then then the both the two of them start to come together. But the experience of going through set exercises um, certainly pulls the uh, pulls the them together in different ways i suppose it lets them find their self in each in each multiple piece of personality that they've got to work with i remember you telling me about an exercise where you send your students to stay in one spot <laughs> tell me about that again for, the, for everybody listening i love this exercise and i have attempted it not probably very successfully for myself since then um not, not so much with the camera, just to observe. Yeah, and with or without a camera, um, it works mm. equally as well. But with, with the camera, um, I think the ultimate um, superpower you could, you could hope for or want is to become invisible so that you could just view the world without um, any encumbrances that, that, that you, you're just in the world. People are... Um, going about their normal lives and you can record all of that without any judgments or values or um, or being self-conscious or, or being seen. And so there's an exercise where I would walk out with my group of 32 students that would be uh, um, the usual number in a class at university and we would go out one by one, I would drop them off in a spot where they couldn't see one of the other students. They could stand on that one spot. They could sit down if they wanted or, you know, rotate 360 degrees, but stand in that spot for two hours. And then I would collect them all back up again. The idea was to record or notice their experience, uh, use their camera to uh, record some of that experience as well. The thing that most students encounter immediately is they get very bored. Very quickly, <laughs> yeah. And no great surprises there. At no, all. no that's what happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, shit, what are we? <laughs> Life's going by. What's happening? <laughs> at that point, most people, you know, um, uh, could potentially give up and go, this sucks, yeah. it's boring. I'm going to move on and do something else because we're in a world where we can do anything at any time. And so we do. And um, uh, lessons get lost. We, you know, because we can do anything at any time. We're sort of coated in this 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 slippery Teflon uh, in life, and it's not very useful. We need things to stick, and we need to 
um, or the potential is to to um, learn from each of these these experiences. And so, mm-hmm. for the students that stick it out, and, and most of them do, because I'm sort of uh, gently encouraging them, Adrian, <laughs> um, to to engage to see what happens beyond being bored, um, and, and what most of them discover is that they they disappear, they vanish, they lose themselves in that moment. And that's really important lesson with a camera is that you put yourself aside and you're just present, you're just in the moment and recording what you're seeing without any other thought involved. Mm. Mm. So as I say, I've, I've um, given it a go. I, I managed to, and I say I managed to do, I did my two hours and I got a lot from it. Now, as I say, I took a few photographs, but not a lot. Um, I just more was like, what are all the different sounds I can hear? What are all the different smells I can um, engage in? And you know, what's my spot that I chose wasn't particularly busy. It was uh, at the beach and there was a people that came and went and all the rest. It was like almost, I, I look back on it, it was like watching a time lapse um, mm-hmm. of, of this thing because I don't know other than sleeping when I could last remember being completely, well, not completely still, but still in one spot for two mm-hmm. hours. You know, maybe a movie might get close, but then you're just being fully entertained anyway. Um, this space of my own, so, yeah, I really enjoyed doing it, and um, it's something that I go, that's my perfect sort of like meditation um, idea, like of just going and being in there and observing everything without trying to run away from everything or, or block everything out. Just let it, It's more letting everything in um, from that moment. Nice way to put it. Mm. And what, what I became or have become aware of is that we, we lead – lead such transitory lives where it's a life in transition. We're immediately going from one thing to the next uh, without any of those, those gaps, those silence, those spaces in between and sitting still has a lot of value in it. Um, We get to hear things and see things, experience things that we wouldn't ordinarily. And the metaphor, the, the comparison I like is the difference between driving a car and being a passenger in the car. When you're a passenger in the car, you see a whole different world mm-hmm. compared to the one when you're driving it. So it's that that life comparison that um, that I think it offers up. Yeah, I like that metaphor of that driving and um, or being a passenger because you do like you go to the same place, but if you're the passenger, um, you get a whole different view of the world from being, uh, you know, just taken care of, I suppose, or being driven. Mm. Um, mm. tell me about um, your publishing tell me about your, what you're doing there and how people can engage with that because the feeling that uh, you have because whilst uh, photography is a visual art it, cre- it evokes emotion and it also is loaded with your feeling of what your work is loaded with your feeling tell me about that when when you're trying to make the choices of what to publish and how to do that Mm, for sure 
Um, are we able to pause for one? Mara? Yeah. Is it is this yeah, pausable? Sure, it's got to uh, yeah, it take that visit yep. to the genes. No worries. So with with the publishing, um, yeah, take take me through that journey of um, of what you choose and how you choose it and where it matters and how you how you want other people to see it or or how you're delivering it to other people, not that you want them to see it in any certain way, just how you're delivering it to them. Yeah, for sure. I think that the easiest comparison or metaphor I, I really um, relate to, and and you may relate to this too, Adrian, is the difference between slow cooking and fast food. <laughs> with yeah. with my process as a photographer, when I'm uh, on a shoot for a day, sometimes maybe two, that is definitely slow cooking. It's um, uh, time slowed down as much as I can, really present, really engaged with the subject and, and the people, if there are pe other people present. Sure capturing those moments the the output from those shoots is often uh, then turned back into a fast food version of that so it'll go into the media stream for example it'll go onto someone's website it'll be printed in a magazine interpreted reinterpreted and i love all of that you know we get another version of the story you know there's the story the architects wanted to tell um, for the homeowner, there's the homeowner's story that's slowly unfolding. There's the pictures I make and the story I intended to tell, and then a magazine will pick it up and do their own version of that. And that, that, that's all wonderful, and time speeds up and it slows down. It, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's dynamic. It's dynamic, yeah. Yeah. And so what I'm aware of within that for myself is that those, those stories that make it out into the world through the websites and the blogs and the Instagrams and the print, printed media, um, it's all fairly, fairly fast. You know, it's a lot like fast food, which is satisfying, but it's, it's fairly quick and quickly absorbed. The appetite for seeing new things is quite, quite prevalent within that. And so, for me, being able to have the opportunity to slow all that down again and present um, something my own way without any compromise and present that as an object, a printed object, like a book, yeah, it's just, it's just like a, oh, it's a dream, really. And, and then actually getting to make it and um, offer it up to whoever wants to buy it, whether that's three people or 3,000, I don't really mind. Yeah. I, I get to make this thing that I want to make and tell the story I want to tell. And with pictures, it's a, it's quite a different offering to, to, to words on a page. Mm. They perform really differently. And the power of suggestion with pictures is quite a different proposition. And it's something I'm, you know, I'm ongoingly learning a lot about. And what I get is that each time I make an object that, um, that attempts to tell a story, I'm, I'm learning every time I do it and, and hopefully, um, you know, maybe getting a little better each time. So um, I, would, I would love to just be making books all the time, but they, they take up a lot of time to make and they cost yeah. money as well. Yeah. Um, but the opportunity is always there to, to, make, to make these things and, and offer them up. So it's, an, it's another way for me to slow time down, 
to engage with something in a very intimate way over a period of time and attempt to sort of tell tell that story with with um, a series of pictures on on pages within within a book yeah um and i love that and so that's my my motivation yeah yeah, i think that when you're not the um well you are the art director there is no other publisher or art director or marketing person (laughs) or anybody else's influence you have to or you i certainly know for myself you become very much at, at at peace with what you do like you, you stop over critiquing and all the rest and you just look for the pieces that brought you joy as you created them um and i mean imagine um in photography you know you, you could create hundreds and hundreds of photos of certain subject and then finding the piece that resonates the most to share and I bet you there's pieces that resonate that you don't want to share as well that maybe you feel more private I don't know does that happen Mm. well it does and you know the two um, sort of significant books if you like that have taken up maybe the most time involved and and really the the stories were about them using their houses their Mm -hmm. home as a staged for their life like you know the pictures attempting to convey a sense of them you know that outward expression of what lies within which is what we do with our homes primarily um and you know how that looks changes dramatically depending on who's involved of course and and yeah the personalities and the energy that's there and um Uh, yeah and the intent and the time we spend there. So, you know, on average, you know, we talked about being humans being very transient um, animals. On average in the Western world, we'll spend only six years in, in each of our homes before we move on to the next. And so what that tells me is that the decisions we're making around how we live are largely based on resale value, not on how we actually would choose to live. I dare say if we if we were expressing ourselves that way, and some people do, we would definitely not be moving every six years. We'd be sitting still a lot more. And I think um, in older countries, you know, older mm-hmm. parts of Europe, that mm-hmm. definitely happens. In newer countries, yep. perhaps, this is just my guess, my take on it, is that um, that happens a lot less. Um, I, I think you're probably right there, you know, like... In um, older countries, there's a lot of multi-generational property um, as well as there is less, maybe less development that is is desirable. If you you sort of went single-family homes um, in Europe, yes, they're still building them. There's no, no doubt about that. But once you get to anywhere that's got some history or age Mm. it is always just a gentle renovation of what existed before and what existed before you must have over your career in this seen quite a change in people's um, needs from architecture and and we're talking residential I'm talking residential single family dwelling here Um, tell me a bit about that I think that'd be absolutely fascinating from the 
I've, I've got my own stories around it, of course, um, mm-hmm. but also, you know, like you've done a journey of documenting um, those, that, that shift in what people are doing. Yeah, for sure. And I've, I've had a little bit of time now, and I say little because it's gone very bloody quickly, mate, to be honest. So, I was about to say, and for a guy that's going to live to be over 120, you're only partway there. Should I wish? I'm, I'm, I'd love that. Um, yeah, put it in the plan. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you've got to have the intention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as you know, and I'm preaching to the converted here and telling you something you already know is that with with architecture, there's a very big appetite for newness. And so, mm. the, you know, driven largely by um, the market and its forces and, and the media that wants to um, show all of that, advertise it and, and um, have that, that, that marketplace be, be vibrant. And the building mm. industry is right now incredibly vibrant. Yeah, um, yeah, crazy. In the Western world, I don't know how well it's going in the third world, but it's certainly yeah, in the so, Western world, it's off its style. Yeah. Oh, it really is. And so what happens is that um, I get to photograph largely homes that are just completed. Um, mm-hmm. The last part of the puzzle is usually the landscaping that hasn't really quite bedded in yet. Um, but the awards programs really, you know, they want to see the new stuff. And in a way that makes complete sense. But I think in an ideal situation, an ideal world, the awards programs would would want that house to have or that building to have proven itself a bit more. I like that um, idea, man. Maybe three I or four that. years in. Yes, you know, or five or whatever. Yeah. Stories that could be told that actually yeah. it worked. Actually the homeowner has worked out how to live in it and hasn't just sold it on within a year because they were trying to make a quick buck. You know, not everyone's intention is to do that, but but it happens and I think there's a richness to to um, to tell these stories, our responsibility to tell these stories from my perspective anyway, in, in the most um, authentic way possible. And, and, you know, I'll happily, and I do, turn up anywhere as a, as a gun for hire with a camera to tell the, the most, you know, the, the richest story possible. And Yes, of that moment. Um, of, of that, that moment, moment. yeah, and, and there's always a story. There's always mm-hmm. a story to tell. Mm-hmm. There's always something to say about um, with, with pictures. Hopefully, that it looks like something's either happened or about to happen. Yeah, and so um, there's a, there's a, a small sort of subtle tension to those pictures that people may hang on a little bit rather than just sort of flick past it. Yes, and so there's there's this newness. There's these this new home, this new building. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love that too. It's an opportunity to tell a slightly different story. But I guess the, the houses that I'm, I've been drawn to with the books that I've made so far, if we come back to the publishing yeah. part, these homes have been around for a bit. They've had past lives even. Yeah. You know, one of the homes is over 120 years old. Um my first book, the homeowners then had been in there for 50 years already. So there was a story that had already been running well before me. So yes. I just sort of was picking up on that and, and, you know, the walls could already talk. Yeah. And so I was able to use um, the archive of pictures that already existed that I had nothing to do with 
and and sew those into the book really i think beautifully so that it it wasn't a book about here's the history of the house and then here's my new pictures that they're all woven together so that you're perhaps as the viewer caused to sort of question what you were looking at not just sort of absorb and be told what you're looking at i think it's that that's the full fabric you know of of from its from the past to the to the moment um when you can give that depth of of the the story um but you're getting the 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 graininess of the fabric of the idea and the fabric of the physical thing um it it leaves yeah it leaves well it fulfills you more or fulfills me more when i get those pieces to it um rather than it just always being the 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 latest and greatest thing um i think it's beautiful to be able to and then also honor other people's you know background and work and all the rest and pull it through um i yeah. th- that point you make about you know photographing things that have um been old and just about always evolve as well so they they go through transitions you know i think of homes ideally you design houses that would last hundreds and hundreds of years but the core of the house would be probably the only remaining part you know there'd be certain pieces that would outlast every other part um as different time requires different um pressures on life and different fashions and stuff like that and the house journeys along with it you know it's certainly i think something that from right now with the pandemic you know rolling into deep into its sort of second year um people have become a lot more home aware um and also self aware in their homes because certainly you know you take somewhere like melbourne where in the last over the last year they've had 200 days of lockdown um they're living in their homes they they like they never have been before and i often laugh and say to people these houses weren't designed to be lived in like this <laughs> i mean like what the hell do you design a house for then but they weren't designed for this um constant being in not necessarily just inside them but constantly being on top of everybody you know houses are generally designed where um people don't always work in them kids certainly aren't always homeschooled in them um mm-hmm. they're entertainment spaces at some point not anymore not if you can't go to them um mm-hmm. and they're family gathering spaces they've got guest rooms they've got all these things that uh, we can we pile around ourselves to make our castle more of a castle mm. um yeah good point well made and what, what that sort of says to me is that the you know if if there is a distinction we are able to make between the the architecture that we have had or the mm. experiences that architecture versus the architecture we we could have given our new relationship to it is that the spaces of old were were touching down and taking off like a contemporaneous yeah. feel with that space that we would you know move in and into and out of um quite quite regularly quickly. regularly and quickly longest time with this when we sleep usually yeah pretty much and so you know what what it makes me think of is something that Surian Athfield 
said one of the subjects of my first book is that we threw a, if we threw a thermograph over a suburb, you know, built of mostly new homes, what we would see is the the red hot part would be around the TV. <laughs> uh, the next hottest part would be around probably the kitchen, the fridge, the fridge, <laughs> and and then it would move to an icy cold blue where the fence is between the two houses. Yeah, true. Nobody leans really, over the fence anymore. Yeah, which is really, <laughs> you know, I don't know how much of that has changed. Um, Should I'd love to see that change. I, you know, I think. What I think really neighbor, neighbor, neighborhood, um, that feel of a combined neighborhood thing. Mm. Mm, mm. I think, yeah, what Ian Athfield really stood for and did so beautifully with his designs um, was create spaces for chance encounter. And that sounds as good as it should be in real life too. Um, yes. and I, love, I love that thought and I love what he did with those spaces. And if you haven't seen any of his architecture, I really strongly suggest you take a look at it. I, um, I know his architecture well as a kid. I lived in um, Wellington. I grew up in Lower Hutt or in Belmont in Lower Hutt. And every time we would drive to the city uh, where my dad worked in advertising, we would go past a number of his homes and then certainly um, around, they were, they were standout buildings and certainly around different parts of Wellington, you would bump into his architecture. And my dad would always point it out. Um, and it was probably my first understanding of that there was actually this thing called architecture. Um, mm. yeah. And and he, yeah, certainly engaged in, in a modern and beautiful way, like did such cool stuff. Like, yeah, for sure. Highly yeah. thoughtful, highly thoughtful. And playful. Um, yes. A real childlike energy to it, which I think is just, you know, just wonderful. Magical. Um, yeah. Magical. It is magical. Yeah. And I think if we reflect back to that comment earlier about that very uh, ice cold blue zone <laughs> in between <laughs> those houses, i.e., the fence, well, we might call it a fence, or we could, through council's um, conventions, call it a wall because a fence you should reasonably expect to. Um, stand at and look over and speak to your neighbor, but we don't have fences, we have walls um, where we wall off any possibility for community, which um, I'm, uh, I really dislike intensely. Um, I think the great opportunity for architecture and there are so many wonderful architects to do such a beautiful job of this who are aware of it is that we activate the edges so we turn those icy cold blue zones into at least, you know, temperate zones. If not, you know, flaming red hot in parts would be good too, right? It, yeah. Like, do you think that um, that the, I want to say the, the greater public or the greater homeowner um, is looking to or, or even aware enough to activate it? I don't think there's a... A right and wrong in this either it might sound like there's some some judgment that could be had you know um everyone's giving it their best go you know everyone's looking after their families and, and looking after um each other to make sure we have the best life some more than others of course and there's evidence to suggest um, both things happening there um but it is good to reflect on what what all that looks like and be aware of it and go well could we you know, what could we do differently here that would 
and enhance our experience of living and connection and um, uh, having a life that's worthy of of what we you know hopefully intend it to be not human unless we're full of hope right yeah well i think that's where humanity when we're full of hope we um actually get to live more yeah that's where yeah. we yeah we get to live in those moments where we're full of hope and full of possibility um yeah. for ourselves and for others absolutely yeah. like, you know i yeah. think that the thing is is it's beyond us it's it's for it's which doesn't have to be beyond us but it's us and others and how can we bring that about um i always like to have this view of the world where you know we're reaching up for help but we're also reaching back to help the other person um so our hands are stretched you know sort of both ways to bring somebody forward with us that needs the help and to find the person that can help us on our journey. Um, and, and that way we fulfill both sort of sides of the picture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a lovely way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember drawing it years ago and thinking, I think, that's, I think that is the kind of way I see the world probably more than, um, or, or the way I, I wish to see the world more than anything. And so, again, stay somewhat focused around um, seeing the world that way, looking for that opportunity and also looking to be a part of that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about, I love, I love the fact that when you were saying then about, you know, the way houses are evolving and the way, you know, people, the, the nuances, like can we, can we get better neighbourhood um, connection can we um gain that you know take the icy blue zone (laughs) and Mm -hmm. turn the tv off to to engage that out remember living in a cul-de-sac in um in england and didn't have parties but they did have just kind of walk-arounds and people would just get out in the cul-de-sac and and chat and also remember we're being in austin texas and i was with a, a a friend of mine there who's an architect and we're in one of the houses. He was just about, it was just about finished being built and um, had this porch at the front and this is in a, um, you know, residential street. And the house was quite focused, not just, it had a backyard that was focused on as well, but it had a focused porch on the front. And I was saying to him, I said, yeah, there's a lot going into the front here. And he said, oh, well, this street, he said, is one of these streets where, you know, neighbours just grab a bottle of wine and they start to wander the street. And they don't always grab a bottle of wine, but they'll grab a bottle of wine and wander the street. And if somebody else is sitting on their porch, they'll come in and sit down and have a drink with them. And this whole street's got a real vibe for doing that. It's something that just happens here. And people move to this this area knowing that this is a draw card of this area and everybody just kind of flows along. So they've all got this sort of, uh, the architecture's all got these porches that's kind of old school, you know, almost like the rocking chairs out there, but looking to the street, um, not for privacy, but for company and for community. Um, And I I was thinking about that icy cold blue zone. Um, 
that it's not about living in each other's pockets. It's just about having enough conversation to have community and joy and um, share. I think it's a, a cool thing. Um, tell me about uh, what you're planning with Derek Henderson, and uh, you had to tell me who Derek Henderson was. Um, yeah, for sure. I'll just I'll just come back to what you're saying. Oh, before. okay, sure. Yeah, just as a just as a comment to that, and I think you know, there's no easy answer to to solve any of these these problems of where where we can uh, turn those icy cold blue zones into warm zones again, but we've largely based our um, our values on how we live with with the dollar and not yes and not and not uh, things like community or um, or what um, some might call gross domestic happiness instead of gross domestic product. And so, <laughs> which I love that. <laughs> yeah, what what I would talk about then is is vibrancy, and and um, if you look at certain neighbourhoods in New York or yep. places like Toronto, parts of Sydney, yeah, um, there's such a beautiful mix of cultures and 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 um, you know there's a there's a wealth discrepancy there too, but it, everyone's in that melting pot together, and it's just so wonderful. Um, when we grew up, largely, I remember, you know, I think back to the, there weren't any fences in the front yards. It was kids no. running through each other's front yards. And, and even backyards between houses. Backyards. And, and the, the, you know, the energy of the children brings the parents together because that's how you operate, mm -hmm. cooperate and live together. Um, what we have now is largely a segregated society where the wealthy people are in suburbs like, Remuera, yep. um, in Auckland, for example, and then yep. in you Double know, Bay or Rose Bay or yeah. something like that in and Sydney. Then, and, yeah. and then the opposite is true in other neighbourhoods, and and that doesn't create any. It creates the opposite of vibrancy. It just creates values based on the on the dollar, and that's it. Uh, mm. And 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 that's how humans operate and function. You know, that's a simplistic view of it, but that's 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 what we need to be aware of and, and maybe, you know, um, we can wait for the governments or the councils to, to come up with some really great ideas to, <laughs> to create this vibrancy, which uh, would be waiting a long time. Yeah, exactly. Um, or, don't, don't hold your breath. It might be your last. Yeah. <laughs> we take, it and take the bull by the, by the horns and say, this is, this is how, this is, this is what I'm responsible for this bit here. And this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm going to encourage. We can do that as individuals, but what tends to seem to happen is, is we end up with gentrification and pushing, whether that gentrification seems to be, I think personally it's, it is government planned or it's council planned or whatever. Um, they're driven by the, the dollar largely. And, yes, yes. Um, they've never been in the past been able to take loans out on on uh, making our cities better, but now they can, and a lot of the the government, the you know, the cities and the governments, um, the city councils are up shit creek with with um, massive debt loans themselves. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a vicious, vicious. Um, it's a it, it's a cycle run totally by economic by financial economics, and yeah. whilst we again this thing of what's enough 
what you know what's enough with food what's enough with everything in our lives what's enough and um the fear that money or lack of money drives in so many people um and the fear of their own security that's driven as well seems to be the mouse wheel that mm-hmm. you know people are caught on and as you say you take those better wealth driven neighborhoods and you look at those and you go um they're driven by massive security you know massive um separation from others uh but also wanting to somewhat be seen by others as well to have succeeded enough to be able to be in, in the monetary system to be in those spaces. Yeah, and so how we measure success then is really important to us and how we define that. So, um, but, you know, those are, those are also much bigger conversations. Yeah, than, absolutely. Than photography and, um, and architecture. Well, philosophy disguises <laughs> photography maybe. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Whichever way it gets delivered. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Hey, so you're asking about who, who is Derek Henderson? Well, a lot yes. of your listeners will know exactly who he is. Um, he's an old friend. He lives in Sydney. He's a wonderful photographer, a wonderful human being. He's got a very um, quick wit and a good mind and I don't think he's ever taken a bad picture in his life he's existed largely in the portrait slash fashion world yeah he's turned his camera to things like still life and landscape as as um uh as deeply as he does to the fashion world he's just a wonderful photographer he's um he wouldn't like me saying this. He's he's a he's a gen, not a generation, but he's he's had a bit more experience than me. So I sort of look, I've looked to him in the past and had some wonderful conversations, learning from him. We had the opportunity some years ago for Home Magazine here in New Zealand to photograph each other's houses. Oh, um, fantastic! Which was really, um, a, you know, a great experience, and I loved it. I went to his house in Sydney. He came to my place then in Titarangi that I'd just. Um, done a big reno on and and it made it for a really interesting um, story in the magazine so um, we've done a little bit of stuff together and what we're embarking on now is creating um, a a workshop a masterclass um, which we'll deliver next year mm-hmm. sometimes so we're in the processes of of process of creating that and we're just having a, a really a really great time making making that um, that workshop, which will be quite an experience for anyone who who um, who joins us, it's mm. going to be quite wonderful. How many people will get to join you? Roughly, uh, there will only be fifteen spots. Um, yeah. it's a two and a half day uh, workshop in the South Island in Queenstown, at based at a very cool uh, motel called the Sherwood. Some of you will know what the Sherwood is. Some of you will have been there. If you haven't... I don't, but I will look it up. <laughs> it's my sort of go-to whenever I'm travelling down that way to do some work. And they're just a great bunch of people who have created a very cool place to um, to, to be, to eat, sleep. and Yeah, and, um, and base yourselves from. Base yourself, yeah. So that's what we're up to, Eric and I. Um and 15 um, spots, so um, yeah, watch this spot and uh, get on Simon's um, 
website and keep your eye out for it because uh, 15 spots isn't going to be many when you're dealing with world-class photographers um, with the sort of pedigree that you guys can deliver. It's uh, And the experience. I imagine there'll be some... Um, there'll be some beautiful quiet moments in that uh, masterclass. Yeah, for sure. Um, Very reflective. Really, really excited by um, being at, I guess, being at this stage in our careers that we're able to do something like this and feel like it's something that will really add value to people's lives, I think. Yeah. Oh, look, I just recently did a masterclass with Glenn Merkett and um, Peter Stutchbury and some others for a week long actually uh, eight days um, and that was my first long one like that and they actually run two week ones in different places but um, wow. I, it, it's got me on the thing of seeking them out you know seeking out these um, master classes uh, globally when we're allowed to travel again um, but I'm going to you know, put one pretty much in the calendar every year is my plan, uh, whether it be local or whether it be international and whether it be, you know, a week long or two week long or three days long, but just go in and immerse yourself into that depth of learning surrounded by the few other lucky people who are also immersing themselves into that depth of learning. Mm. And, mm. and the environmental shift that you get from, traveling to something even if it's in your own city but you go and stay somewhere else that environmental shift yep. just transitions you out of daily life into a a new space even if the space isn't new to you a new space because mm -hmm. of the new energy and the new people and the new learning yeah those different worldviews are so important it adds to that mm -hmm. vibrancy i think we were talking about before. yeah and the depth of the fabric that you that you're wrapped in as a yeah. as a yeah. human being, as well as being a, as a, a professional or you know hobbyist, mm. whatever it wants to be, mm. I think that sounds absolutely brilliant. Mm. <laughs> and also to do it in Queensland, uh, sorry Queenstown, um, yeah. I think that that is you know like again, you're taking people to a recognised world class spot. Um, but something with immense beauty, uh, you know, like it—it's certainly a place to be experienced, regardless. Um, and and while it is well recognised by people around the world, it's been the backyard for Derek and I for so long. We both know it really intimately. Yeah. Uh, we know the places exactly where we want to take people uh, and why. And, and get to sort of um, uh, share our craft, you know, the experiences and um, benefits of the different processes we've um, used over the years and, and why and how we've made the pictures we've made. Yeah, yeah. I think that'd be, yeah, a fantastic experience. Um, is, it, um, is it for photographers or does it go beyond? Oh, it is for photographers. I think yeah. it's those photographers that are, um, they may be well into their careers or they may be at the beginning, but they're, you know, that they're keen to explore uh, another way of looking at the world and, and to pick up some 
some skills add add to their skill set through looking at, at how Derek and I have done what we've done and what we continue to do with our careers. Mm. Yeah, well, that's actually a really valuable thing as well, like especially, you know, for people who are maybe mid-career or early career to get the insights as to what a career in photography, if you're, that you can't separate yourself from, a career in photography that you won't, well, you wouldn't separate yourself from, um, how, to, how to craft that as well. I think it's really valuable to be around people that have already crafted it. I reckon I've got one last question, which is if there was one thing that you were left to photograph, mm. what would you photograph? One thing. Wow. Yep. I asked this question of somebody the other day, not, not of photographing, but of um, one project. And uh, she thought that I meant that it meant that she had to, it was the last project before she died. I said, no, no, it's just the last project that you ever get to do. You can keep living. We don't have to kill you when you're finished. Oh, okay. So, cool. so it's okay. You, you can keep living. And you, you could choose something, well, anything, but it's just the one last project that you ever photograph. And after that, you hang up your camera. I, I really uh, love the way my, my partner Dee looks at me and if I could record that as a picture and have that in front of me and that's the last picture I ever got to make, I'd be very happy, man. Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's really cool. I bet you've taken a few of those photos along the way. I have, I have. I've, I've tried. <laughs> I've tried. I like that. <laughs> Simon, that has been a fabulous chat, man. Um, I've really enjoyed it. And I think that there's a lot in there for people to experience, certainly um, taking the mindfulness route of being present and knowing that when you pick up a camera, um, you're in that moment and you're going to capture that moment. And then taking time to breathe and be conscious of the space. Um, and, you know, also having the the ability to or, or the education maybe more than the ability, the experience to be able to find your piece of yourself in the photography and how you can express that piece of art. Um, yeah. And I think that it's a, a really beautiful thing. Architectural photography is a really amazing um, piece of, of the photography world because those buildings don't travel otherwise. Um, and you're doing an honour to the architects and the designers by allowing their work to travel. Hey, thanks. I've really enjoyed this talk too. Thank you, mate. Yeah, really cheers, lovely. buddy. Really, really nice. Take care and have a fabulous day. Thanks. You too, Adrian. Cheers, mate. Talk soon. Cheers, okay. buddy. Bye. Bye. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking 
say three questions and this is called takeaway selling so this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you it's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them you put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.